Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of our Multi-State Monday podcast series. My name is Deanna Hayes. I am a shareholder in the firm's Tampa, Florida office, and I'm the chair of Ogletree's Multi-State Advice and Counseling Practice Group. And I'm excited for this special edition of Multi-State Monday, where I have my partner and friend, Philip Russell, who's also a shareholder in the Tampa office, on as our special guest. And he hosts another firm podcast called Dirty Steel Toed Boots. I'll let him say hello and tell us a little bit about his podcast. Well, thanks, Deanna. I appreciate you having me on Multi-State Monday. Great title for your podcast. Uh, yeah, mine is Dirty Steel Toe Boots, which would indicate, of course, it has something to do with dirty boots. <laughs> and uh, it does. And in fact, it's uh, we focus on OSHA and workplace safety and health. We've been doing it for about two years now. I've got about 20 episodes out there on all things OSHA, whether it's regulatory or enforcement. A lot, we, we talk a lot about inspections and what it's like, what happens during a typical OSHA inspection when OSHA shows up at the job site because something bad happened or there was a complaint. So uh, a lot of good uh, discussion and guests. And you've been my guest on the uh, podcast a few times on Dirty Steel Toe Boots. I have. I have. I'm actually, in addition to chairing the Multi-State Advice and Counseling Practice Group, another part of my compliance efforts is being a member of the firm's Workplace Safety and Health Practice Group. So just to touch about my background, I've handled uh, around 200 OSHA fatality cases and hundreds of other kinds over the years. Part of my practices is employment law, but primarily I spend it in, in the workplace safety and health field. And so I'm, I'm happy to join you today and talk about, I, I guess the topic is what is OSHA multi-state? Exactly. Thank you so much for joining us. And the big question is, is workplace safety and health a multi-state issue? What do you think, Philip? Yeah, of course it is. And I think that we all start with, everybody just refers to the four-letter word, OSHA, <laughs> uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Agency or Administration. Um, but that agency is a Fed agency, but it is not necessarily the law of the land across all 50 states. Uh, there are 22 states that have their own state plan which is something permitted in the OSHA Act of 1970. So when FedOSHA was created, the government also said in the statute, the OSHA Act, that states could create their own plans and they could have their own standards. The legal requirement is they have to be at least as effective as FedOSHA standards. And sometimes there's some debate and dispute about whether or not that's true. I'm, I'm looking at you, Arizona and Florida <laughs> and uh, Arizona, because there was uh, Fed OSHA took the position for a brief while that what Arizona was doing with regard to COVID wasn't as least as effective. Uh, and then, of course, in Florida, our home state, there was a move underway, uh, may or may not have gone away, I guess we'll see in time, to have uh, Florida create its own state plan. Uh, in part because of disagreement between Fed OSHA and some leadership, political leadership in Florida, about what it means to be at least as effective as when dealing with the pandemic. So, uh, no, you cannot just simply say that workplace safety is a one-size-fits-all across the nation. It doesn't work that way. And it sounds like it, having a state plan is not a get-out-of-OSHA-jail-free card where a state can do whatever it would like. 
Uh, what happens if a state exceeds that, that boundary? OSHA has the authority to come in and to revoke the authorization. So I think it's a, it's a misunderstanding to say that if you have a state plan, you don't have to deal with Fed OSHA. That's simply not true. The OSHA Act itself gives OSHA oversight authority. So even though you may have a state plan, you know, and I'm looking at you now, California and Washington <laughs> and Oregon and, and Virginia and North Carolina, those are some of the more aggressive state plans uh, that, uh, that you run into. You run into issues there sometimes of being way more aggressive than what FedOSHA does. And you will never hear from FedOSHA currently uh, as to being more aggressive than FedOSHA. But you might hear from FedOSHA if you aren't being as aggressive. And again, I mentioned Arizona and Florida earlier. South Carolina also got a letter during the pandemic from FedOSHA when FedOSHA was taking the position that South Carolina wasn't doing enough. Mm-hmm. But it is it is interesting to see. But let's let's talk about, you know, I think another way to illustrate this, Deanna, is not so much. Well, before we leave that point, here's the takeaway. You must know where your accident or incident occurred where matters. And so when we get calls in our practice group on workplace safety and health, uh, one of the first questions is, well, where did this occur? Mm-hmm. Was this a fed state fed plan or was it a state plan? Absolutely. And it, it can be that the standards or the rules that are being enforced can vary by state and also even the basic issues of reporting an issue to OSHA when employers have an obligation to do that changes depending on where you are. It does. Very nuanced. Sometimes the rules can be just a nuanced difference, but the the difference with the distinction. So very important to know. And to give an example, it's June and we're actually in Texas at the American Society of Safety Professionals Conference today, and it's hot here. (laughs) It is deep in the heart of Texas. So one of these areas where state plans can differ from Fed OSHA is heat stress. So there are a few states, uh, California, Oregon, and Washington, that have additional requirements than Fed OSHA. Isn't that right? There are. And those, those states sometimes... You know, this is an area in which you've got a very wide differences in opinion about what is effective in dealing with heat illness. And California OSHA um, is, has, I guess, taken the lead on this issue. They've got uh, standards for indoor and outdoor heat illness exposure. And a little bit of a side note here, the person that was responsible for most of those rules coming mm-hmm. into effect, Doug Parker, was the head of Cal OSHA at the time and is now the head of Fed OSHA. Um, so we are actually now still awaiting a notice of proposed rulemaking from Fed OSHA on heat illness, and we'll see what it contains. So lots of discussion. We can actually do a whole separate podcast on heat illness, as you know. Mm-hmm. But those states that have taken it up take an interesting approach. And I'm talking about states like Washington and Oregon that took a look at heat illness and have written the rules about heat illness in states where they don't really have heat is that big of an issue. Not like Florida. Exactly. Not like Florida. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it, it is an interesting area. I think it's an evolving area. And that's one where no way um, should any employer just assume that how it is enforced in one state is how it's going to be. Absolutely. And another area that comes up uh, for multi-state employers is the issue of workers' comp and workers' compensation exclusivity and torts. Can you give us an overview of that? Yeah. So every state's law on workers' compensation is going to be different, although there may be some commonalities and similarities. You should never assume that how it works in one state is how it works in another. 
Um, workers' comp is not a federal law. It's not a federal statute. It is in each and every one of the states. One of the most important aspects of workers' compensation in, in all states is to what extent does the state make the workers' comp system and the benefits provided there, therefrom the exclusive remedy of the employee. And in most states, and I'll just use our home state of Florida, there is, it's, it's been referred to as a deal, as a compromise, a legislative compromise between providing compensation for injured workers and not having those cases go into regular civil court. Otherwise, businesses might be tied up in litigation always because workers, you know, do get hurt on the job. So this separate system, it's a no-fault system. Fault doesn't matter. The only question is whether or not there was an injury uh, that happened at work and is part of the course and scope of the employee's duties uh, and benefits are paid. Then in exchange for there being no-fault benefits paid, then the employer gets the benefit of that being the exclusive remedy. They cannot be sued for tort claims like personal injury claims unless, and this is where it varies dramatically state to state, is how high is that bar? Mm -hmm. How high is it? Like in Florida, for example, there's got to be a virtual certainty the injury was going to occur before the plaintiff could get around the defense. And I think, in fact, the seminal case in Florida on that involved uh, a killer whale. Yeah, exactly. Indeed. Indeed. So, you know, it is one of those where you need to, you know, know exactly what the state's like. You got to know how hard, how high is the bar for that exclusivity. And it really might vary state to state. That's all great information, Philip. And something else that can cross over into the workplace safety space and vary dramatically by state law is drug testing. Can you tell us about some issues that employers might want to consider there? But we do have a drug, uh, we actually do have a uh, drug testing practice group. Uh, Mike Clarkson, our colleague up in Boston, is the leader of that practice group. And, and uh, I've learned a lot from him and, and our colleagues in that area and you over the years. But yes, the drug-free workplace laws vary dramatically state to state. There's not a one-size-fits-all federal statute that comes into play here. And it really has gotten interesting over the last few years with marijuana which remains illegal from a federal law perspective, yet has been legalized in one shape, form, fashion, or the other in all, what, two-thirds of the states so far, something like that. Mm -hmm. So, and more. I think Florida may be next on recreational coming in 2024. So you really do, when it comes to just to knowing what you as an employer can and cannot do with regard to testing employees for drugs and, you know, what kind of testing can be done, whether it's post-accident, reasonable suspicion, random, or pre-employment, those are going to vary state to state. What information do you have to give employees in advance? What notices do you provide? How do you handle the testing? How are the specimens handled? You know, there are medical review officers that have to get involved under some statutes, and, and, it, and it really does change state to state. So you cannot just assume that what works in Florida, for example, is going to work in Mississippi or Utah. Mm -hmm. You have to check your state's law and see where you, where it is when it comes to developing those policies. That's spot on. And like you said, Phyllis, I mean, it comes down to what type of testing are you required to do, if any? And if you choose to do testing, what parameters can you do that testing within? And um, I think, like you said, the question of legalized marijuana is making things even more complicated. And sometimes it comes down to what your organization wants to do. What's the culture? You know, are you having difficulty with recruiting employees? And that, that's become a lot of issue, a big issue for a lot of clients. 
um, to consider and many are, are deciding to take marijuana off the pre-hire or random selection panels, but leaving it on for reasonable suspicion or post-incident testing. Um, what would OSHA say about post-incident drug testing in a nutshell? Well, <laughs> what year are we talking right. about? So, you know, many folks know that a few years ago, OSHA seemed to take the position that post-accident drug testing somehow violated the OSHA Act and its standards. But they did so in a preamble to a rule on electronic record keeping. So a preamble is itself not a rule. So I don't think it's true to say that OSHA ever had a rule itself. But certainly there was an indication that OSHA would take the position of post-accident drug testing might actually dissuade employees from coming forth and reporting safety concerns and issues. I can't say I ever fully understood it. I think it was a, a stretch for the agency then, and I think it's a stretch for them now to take that position. So currently it's an unofficial position. I don't see it as being something that it, that really gives me great pause or concern. I think an employer needs to focus on safety. And if you're focused on safety, then you're going to consider all four of those types of drug testing with the emphasis being on reasonable suspicion and post-accident. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And I think you know, knowing that some employers are choosing to take marijuana off the panel, I think it underscores the importance of training, right? Reasonable suspicion, training for your frontline supervisors. What does impairment look like and what do they need to do if an employee appears to be impaired on the job? Well, therein lies the rub, right? Because we, we know how to judge impairment levels for alcohol. We don't really know that with certainty in, when it comes to marijuana. Uh, So I think that needs to be developed. I know that there are some folks out there that are developing some interesting uh, tests and devices, but it's not as widely as accepted yet. Maybe soon, but not yet. Uh, And I think that's very important. One thing I will say that is common among all the states and and federal law, state law, you name it. And I think it's very, I think we can comfortably say this, is that no state will make it lawful for someone to be high or under the influence at work. Mm -hmm putting themselves or others in harm's way, period, end of story. Whether you have a policy or don't have a policy, whether you have a drug-free workplace or not. Or in Florida, we have two types, the short version or the long version. It doesn't matter. No one has any legal protection to be on the job and high, under the influence, whatever you want to call it, putting themselves or others in harm's way. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's why it's important, again, for your supervisors to recognize that Another issue that I I wanted to touch on is workplace violence. How might that be impacted on a multi-state level? So, again, I think you have to look at, let me first address, let's just address guns. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about firearms. Hot topic here, of course, same, same with others, but very emotional topic, heated debates on both sides. But states are passing laws governing the possession and, and, uh, and use of firearms. And that does impact the workplace. And so you do need to check your state law. You know, what, what, I'll give you an example. In our home state of Florida, there is a law we kind of colloquially call it the guns in the workplace law from almost 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And what it says and what it doesn't say is important. And if you're an out of state employer and you have, you know, workers in Florida, then they have a right under that statute to have a gun in their vehicle locked in the vehicle or locked attached to the vehicle, maybe a shotgun attached to a motorcycle, I guess, but as long as it's locked, it would count. 
it would be okay. And you as the employer, even if it's your parking lot and you own it, you can't tell them not to have it there. That's a bit of a nuance that may surprise out-of-state employers that you need to understand. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that the technical definition is if it's a, a motor vehicle is a vehicle that has to be registered in the state. So as long as it has to be registered, it's a motor vehicle where you can keep that firearm. And there are many other states that have similar laws with protection for possession of firearms in parking lots. So one of the things that I often see in policies is a statement that employees can't have weapons on the premises and on the premises with no type of exception could be too broad under those laws. Right. On the premises. Now, under this Florida law, it would be law. It would be lawful for an employer to say you no firearms in company vehicles or in the offices uh, or in the facility. Mm-hmm. If it's a manufacturing or warehouse facility, that would be OK. We're talking about the parking lot only. But again, that's a nuance you may not appreciate if you're an employer in another state and you didn't check Florida law. Mm -hmm. So just like you might miss it if you're a Florida employer and you're going into another state and your handbook, you know, complies with that Florida law, it might not comply with the laws of Alabama or another place. And I think it's a good point to mention about the word, the phrase on the premises, because you may read that quickly and say on the premises. Oh, and then you mentally think, well, that's just in the offices. You've got to think about the parking lot. Absolutely. And you can also, in many of those states, still prohibit employees from having that weapon in a company vehicle. So that's something that you can call out as well. That's right. And I also think from a, now we talked about guns, but I think from a workplace violence perspective, I do know that work, that we are seeing some of the OSHA state plans look closely at workplace violence. Fed OSHA itself is looking at some possible standards for workplace violence in certain industries. Uh, that being healthcare, mental health care institutions and facilities. We've seen OSHA use the general duty clause already, even without a standard, to require that employers have a workplace free from the recognized hazard of workplace violence in a facility housing patients that are that are violent and known to be violent. So it's it's something that you have to look at from not just guns, but also other sorts of violence in the world. That's a great point. And for our listeners who might not be as familiar with workplace safety and health, can you explain about the general duty clause a little bit more? Because that's also what FedOSHA uses for heat stress that we mentioned earlier. Yeah, just put real simply, the general duty clause is part of the OSH Act. And and when the OSH Act created OSHA and said, okay, OSHA, you are the enforcement arm for workplace safety, it gave the agency the authority to write two kinds of citations. One is that's most well-known is for specific standards. So fall protection, trenching, lockout, tagout, those sort of things. Very specific standards that say thou shalt do something or thou shalt not do something. And they're organized in sets. You've got section 1910, which is general industry, 1926, which is construction. And then there's also a set for maritime and agriculture. So when you look at those specific standards, that is what's most commonly known. But OSHA also you can cite you under a different part of the Act, Section 5A1, known as the General Duty Clause, which requires employers to maintain a workplace free from recognized hazards. And that's where OSHA has used uh, this phrase, recognized hazard, to refer to known instances of possible violence. They've used it with heat stress because, hey, every employer in Florida the claim goes for OSHA, <laughs> should know that heat is a recognized hazard, especially working outside of Florida. 
Now, there are all sorts of questions about triggers and such, which we can get into another time. But those are a couple of uses. Also, during the pandemic, that mm-hmm. OSHA did not have a specific standard for COVID, so it used the general duty clause when it wrote citations. That's right. Well, this has been a really enlightening discussion. Thank you again for joining us, Philip. And thank you, everyone, for joining us for another Multi-State Monday. And we hope to see you again for the next episode. Thanks, Deanna. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.